We turn now to God's word in Nehemiah. If you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 4. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 488. And we will be reading all of chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, What are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God, and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried material did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked but the men who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so that they can serve us as guards by night and workmen by day. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. This is God's word for us today. 
confidence in the face of opposition. That's the heading that we have, and we're looking essentially at chapter 4, but it's part of this section, uh, chapters 4 to 6, which is all to do with conflict and opposition. Making a good start and being a good finisher don't always come together. So what we have in chapter 4 is this cumulative effect of opposition and oppression, particularly on the leadership and indeed the workers who are trying to rebuild the wall, a wall city which was the main source of security. Without that, they were vulnerable. So we continue in our journey through chapter 4, and now we come face to face with unrelenting criticism. Here's a sentence, and uh, this might be a source of help to you. It is to me, and it's this. Anyone, at any time, anyone who aspires to leadership of any kind, parent, marriage, work, church, you name it, the wide spectrum of leadership, which for the most part all of us are involved in varying degrees, Anyone who aspires to leadership must, must be prepared to face criticism. Now, there it is. Come to terms with it now so that you brace yourself and you are ready. You have to do this no matter how worthy your goals, no matter the clarity of your vision, no matter the sincerity of your motive or intention. You will face criticism. It is innate within human nature. Some criticism, of course, is valid, and that's a tricky bit. Nevertheless, that is something that we have to face. Otherwise, we are going to become discouraged and contract out of meaningful involvement with people. Here's another uh, a quotation. This isn't mine. This is Oswald Saunders of a previous generation when he said this. No leader is exempt from criticism. And his or her humility, or brackets, character, will nowhere be seen more clearly than in the manner in which he or she accepts and reacts to it. Now, if you take nothing else from the sermon, would you take that? Just say that again. No leader is exempt from criticism. And his or her humility or character will nowhere be, more, will nowhere be seen more clearly than in the manner in which he or she, we accept and react to it. Well, how do you react to criticism. Hopefully it's constructive. How? Whether it's parent and child, it's employer-employee, whether it's leadership within the stratas of, of work or church or community. Well, this is a, a great example uh, from Nehemiah and I think it's got a lot to teach us. So let's just look at this then. That's trying to clear the ground, get, our, get us to do a bit of thinking, first of all, from our own experience thus far and perspectives. And I'm sure you can, you can go there where you have received uh, criticism. Maybe now you sit this morning and you are the better for it. And you look back and you give thanks to God for those who had the courage actually to say to you rather than about you. 
And that's something, isn't it? And it's all part of the whole experience of life, of being mature and sufficient and be prepared to face the unknown situations in which we will find ourselves. Think of the family of Craig today. Would they ever have thought they would be catapulted into such grief and sorrow? Well, let's look at this. Chapter 4, 1, 2, 3. First of all, there's the initial opposition. This uh, initial opposition, as from our reading, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, uh, we see that it's rather surprising. You would think that this small group, relatively small group of people, in contrast to the people around uh, Jerusalem, this band of, of Jews valiantly undertaking a task far too great for their resources would be of any risk or threat to anybody. You would think that a very small little church in Long Crendon would be so insignificant that people would want to pour such criticism upon it. But it does happen. It does happen. Like most critics... They looked at the situation only from a human point of view. They didn't take into consideration that this just might be God's work, God's plan. And here is one outstanding conviction through the whole of the church right up today. If it is God's work, it will flourish. Of course, it's the whole process of testing that. So let me say to you, in this context, this initial opposition, don't be a Sanballat. There he is, a thorn in the flesh. A thorn in the flesh. I remember a conversation of um, a health visitor in a general practice, and the doctor said to her, we all have a thorn in the flesh, and I'm yours. Isn't that a... Yes, and it proved to be true. People can be a thorn in the flesh. Usually it is people, not something. Uh, I did a spell check on Sambalat, and it came up with sandblast. <laughs> there you are. And what does he do? He sandblasts Nehemiah. This classic character assassination. Now you may have experienced that. Well, what's the reaction? Look in verses 4 to 6, and, and there you see that uh, here's the initial reaction. It would be easy to give as good as you get, wouldn't it? And that's so much part of our human nature. It takes two to argue. It does. And arguments tend to be unhelpful and fragment. But an argument will die on the spot when one person refuses to react or participate. It's up to you, isn't it? It's up to me. It always takes two. That's sufficient, if you like. And Nehemiah stays to the task. Here's a word of caution while we're thinking about this. We've hinted it, uh, at it already, and it's this. Not all criticism is wrong. Some of it is motivated by a genuine concern, even if initially it hurts us, or it's a wound to our pride. 
Some criticism is worthy of a second thought and, and reflection and consideration. But it is up to each leader, each person, if you like, to learn and listen with discernment as much as we can with an open mind and an open heart. The trouble is we are smite with this per perilous disease called prejudice. We prejudge before, often before people say anything. Now we know we're guilty of that. And we really should ask God to forgive us because it does blight relationships. So there it is. There's the initial opposition and the initial reaction. But then as you read on in verses 7 to 8, you see it intensifies. And when you get to verse uh, 7, for instance, when Sambala Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem, the walls had gone already, that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And the pressure builds up even more. If I said to you, first of all, don't be a Sambalat, here's another don't, don't be a Luddite. I asked one or two people, what is a Luddite? Let me give you what the dictionary says. If you Google Luddite, you'll see it's very interesting. It's people who originally, in the early 19th century, worked in their looms, in the textile industry. And then during... Uh, progress in the Industrial Revolution, there were machines. And you know the great English, if you want to get the English to really become emotional, it's Jerusalem, those dark satanic mills. The Luddites wanted to destroy them. It was progress. And sometimes people say to folk, in a situation of change, don't be a Luddite. Don't resist progress. So 1811 to 1816, a band of English artisans who raised riots against machinery of those who wanted to obstruct progress. That's what the dictionary says. Well, here we are, classic Luddites. Don't be a Sambalat. Don't be a Luddite. Well, what's the reaction to that? Go on a mega whinge? Well, look at verse 9. This is so salutary for us, isn't it? But we pray to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. The way to handle Luddites is to pray. Of course you have to engage. I don't say only pray. But that's part of the equation. And what is the intensified reaction? It is here just to pray. And we pray to our God. Here is practical prudence in the face of cynicism. I think this is a lesson for all of us. Wherever we, we find ourselves this morning, what, is, what does Nehemiah do? He, he matched the intensified opposition with intensified prayer. Jesus did this on the cross. My soul is, is anxious within me. And this engaging with his father, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Verse 14 in this chapter is the pivotal verse, and look at this. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, maybe when he looked things over, his heart sunk and he says, this is impossible. 
But he says to the officials and the rest of the people two things. First, don't be afraid of them. The paralysis of people. What will they think? What will they say? Some people spend their lives like that in some state of mild fear of public opinion. Now, that doesn't mean we should be unwise. But don't be afraid of them. They are people like you. Don't be afraid of them. And secondly, remember the Lord. Now, the context of this discouragement is is a salutary lesson for us. Look, let me read to you from verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there is much rubble. You have to clear the ground of rubble before you can get on with, with the building project. Also, look at verse 11, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and will kill them and put an end to the work. Now look at this. This sort of almost mesmerizing, hypnotic effect. Then the Jews who, who lived near them came to us and told us, they said this ten times, again and again. You know, you wonder in the media and how we live today, how often we are cowed by the impact of being conditioned and manipulated. That's how they felt. And Nehemiah's response, it should be ours. Don't be afraid of people Remember God. Now that's so simple in a way, and yet it's so profound, isn't it? So he highlights these things. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. The first one is to address their fear, by definition. The second one is to address their discouragement. Some people have the gift of discouragement. And they use it far too much. Here is Nehemiah saying in the face of all of this. Remember the Lord. I wonder how much in your crisis in these past months that you've actually done that. That actually he has in his greater purpose allowed things to happen. Which you found very hard. Do you forget him? Or do you remember him? The Lord has helped us before. The Lord will help us again. He is a covenant God. We break promise. He doesn't. We compromise covenant. He doesn't. Why? Because he is the great and awesome God. Great and awesome. See, verse 14 isn't a private faith. It's a personal faith, sure. But it's also a public faith in terms of its outworking. You think that if you say in given situations in your life that you're going to remember the Lord and you're not going to be afraid, what is its impact? Well, look. A God who is great and awesome will fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. You see the implication of it. This isn't just simply a private belief in God, but a public conviction in the marketplace, among cynics and skeptics. You remember God, that he is great and he is awesome. We so quickly forget him. Reminder plus challenge. 
equals encouragement. And here's our tendency. I've said this before, and it is worthy of repeating. Here's our tendency. We tend to remember what we should forget. Don't go there anymore. And we forget what we should remember. Stay there now. We forget our prayer. But we remember our fear. And we live off it. And it breeds upon us like a virus. We forget our awesome God. And we remember awful people. We forget our blessings. And we remember our hurts. You see the situation. You've got to say to yourself, I've got to stop doing this. I've got to stop doing this. So let's look at three practical lessons. The first... Think about this now. It is more difficult to complete the second part of a task than the first. You, you ask yourself, how many tasks have you got in your life that you've left unfinished? You just move on to the next. And maybe that your life is shot through with half-finished tasks. We're going to sing a hymn in a moment, facing a task unfinished. I hope it's true of you as it is for me. Why do I say that? Well, chapter 4, verse 6, look. See, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. And then their hearts began sunk within them. It is more difficult to complete the second half than the first and we are poised as a church with a big challenge. Discouragement, lack of energy, dispirited. Secondly, exhaustion can cause paranoia. You, you, we've looked at this verses 10 to 12 where constantly this barrage of criticism and cynicism and fear ten times... That's a lot of times. And we're worn out. We're, if you like, we're, we're exhausted emotionally, physically, burnt, burnt out. It was an achievable goal. That's how we started. Now it's impossible. Well, what's happened? It's internal, isn't it? And a third lesson here is this. Good leadership, good leadership involves both modeling and encouraging, living and speaking, what I am and what I say. And for sure, if what I am contradicts what I say, it's not worth much. Okay, nobody's perfect. So in verse 21, for instance, so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. It's not always like that. There is a period of intense work. We can't sustain that, of course. But there are times like that. 
Good leadership involves both modeling and encouraging. If you read chapter 4 carefully, you will see that what he was, the people became. They prayed like him. They worked like him. And all of us as Christians need both good models and be a good model. The things that we expect from others, they should expect from us. And any good leader, whether father, mother, pastor, counselor, teacher, or anybody, knows that both are necessary to see a task through. Let's conclude with four quick applications. So, this is what it means. We've heard what it says. Number one, changing a heart or an attitude is God's speciality for sure, not, I repeat, not ours. You can go through life if you want to as a parent or a leader to change people to fit your specifications, your agenda. Manipulate colleagues, pressurize them. I hope that we don't do that. Let God take care of it. Trust him. Remember God. He is awesome. Secondly, and here's a thing that we need to learn. Praying and working go hand in hand. This false dichotomy between, well, somebody is spiritual and somebody is practical. You won't find it in Scripture. And often the devil wants to drive a wedge between that. The best prayers are the best workers. The best workers are the best prayers. You've never really prayed until you've worked, and you've never worked until you've prayed. How does Nehemiah start? Let God change the king's heart. Thirdly, faith. Faith is not a substitute for careful planning. The church at Corinth was a fragmented church, a very gifted church, a remarkable church, but fragmented and divided. And Paul's word to the church, let things be done decently and in order. Somehow we think sometimes that is against the Spirit. No, it allows the Spirit to lead and to liberate even more. Faith is not a substitute for careful planning. And finally and lastly, opposition is to be expected when God's will is carried out. When a person knows that he is following God's will, or a company of people, a church or a group, it is unusual if there is not at least some person or people who will oppose this. I have rarely known it to be otherwise. Some people just can't cope with change. Some people resist progress. Some people don't believe in God. Some people only look at the human resource. 
Nehemiah. He meets us right where we are. And when we face these pressures, he asks the king for a letter and resource. doesn't just pray and do nothing. And when he was afraid, he said, Lord, give me the words. Help me to trust you more. And we need to be people of faith, yet carefully balanced with realism. Confidence in the face of opposition. It will come. And I hope that in some way a sermon like this will brace us in anticipation that when it comes and not if, from surprising sources, I grant you, then we are ready. Then we are ready.